0: It's Friday, August 25th, 2023, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Actuaries have revealed the three highest risk behaviors correlated with the overall mortality rates three, fentanyl use, two, the combination of smoking, sedentary lifestyle, and low levels of social participation, and number one, plotting a coup against Vladimir Putin. To be fair, those plotting coups against Vladimir Putin also exhibited high rates of alcohol use, so it's hard to disaggregate the data. But these statisticians say it is actually healthier for a 92-year-old with a previous history of heart disease to go around to every resident of a nursing home beset by COVID and lick them all than to plot a coup against Vladimir Putin. I have known Prigozhin for a long time, since the early 1990s. Vladimir Putin was quoted as saying, He is a man with a complicated fate who has made many serious mistakes in his life. He is a talented businessman, a talented person, not only doing business and working in our country, but achieving results abroad, especially in Africa. We remember this, we know this, and won't forget it, Putin said. He then bowed his head, walked over to a CD boombox, and pressed play. I will remember you. He was my chef, but so much more. Will you remember me? He was my muse, my light, and my north star. Don't let your life pass you by. They say we all find our person find mine scattered in several pieces in a field in Kozakino. There was a rumor that he would be piloting the Luna 25 rocket. When I heard that, I thought of his bravery. Then after the rocket crashed into the surface of the moon, we discovered it was all just a misunderstanding on my part, but whoopsie, the point stands. As I said about Yevgeny before, because our missile telemetry was off, he will be missed. I mean, why, why do we not just plant the bomb the first time? Guys, sorry, sorry about that outburst. We all grieve in our own way. We'll you. on the show today well first let me just say this because i don't say it enough could you leave a review could you go to apple podcasts and leave a review all next week i'll be off but it'll be all new programming because i'm doing i was wrong week in which i contemplate my excesses and errors who else does this like it hate it leave a review thanks On the show today in the spiel, the last straw, probably not the last, but the next straw in my critique of those who critique straws. But first, 1973, Syria, Egypt, and a consortium of Arab nations amass their tanks and forces to invade Israel. The prime minister, Golda Meir, has choices. This is the backdrop and setting of the new film, Golda, starring Helen Mirren. The director, Guy Native joins us next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites, Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where it got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could've taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of the Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. When I was a child in Ukraine, at Christmas time, my father would
1: board up the windows of our house.
0: ...to protect us from Cossacks who would get drunk and attack Jews. They would beat Jews to death in the street for fun. My father would hide us in the cellar. And we'd stay silent, hoping the killers would pass us by. My father's face, Henry. I will never forget that look. All he wanted was to protect his children.
1: I am not that little girl hiding in the
0: cellar. Guy Nativ is an Oscar-winning director. He won for Live Action Short, a film called Skin, which he turned into a feature film. He is out with his first film based on real events. It is the story of Golda Meir, specifically during the 1973 Yom Kippur War. It stars Helen Mirren as Golda Meir, and Guy joins us now. Welcome to The Gist.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. Happy to be here.
0: So I understand why Helen Mirren would be interested in playing the queen in a movie of that name. She was the subject of Queen Elizabeth. What was her connection, if any, to Golda Meir, Israel, or was she just intrigued by the source material in the project?
1: Okay. So first of all, um, Helen Mirren, uh, at the age of 29, um, was went to Israel uh, after the Six-Day War with her Jewish boyfriend toured the country from north to south and um, volunteered in a kibbutz called Ha'on. And she was there for a few months. Um, And she was, you know, she was overwhelmed by what she saw, by the people that she met. And she felt that she was basically, was supposed to be born there, actually, because she she felt that she's so Jewish and she's so Israeli. And um, since then she, obviously had a uh jewish husband and later on and and she came a lot to israel and supported us um you know she called she called it our tribe of actors and artists um even in hard times Mm. so i think that she has israel as her dna in a way and when i came on board to this project helen was already attached to play golda Um, And I asked, how come? How did she, how did you guys decide? So They said that Gideon Meir, her grandson, uh, told the producer that he sees Helen in his grandmother. That Helen has Hmm. all the the DNA and everything in her soul to portray his grandmother from every person, from any, every person in the world, she is the one. So I met with her in the middle of the pandemic and we spoke for three and a half hours in my home in my place in la and uh we understood that we are on the same page we don't want to do a war movie straight on war movie we don't want to do a biopic from birth to death Uh, we want to do a very kind of a magnifying glass on golda in 10 days of this terrible war
0: among the many revelations of this, I always knew that Golda Meir was one of the first ever female heads of state, certainly the first in that part of the world. And I know that Israel, though they have a lot of uh, what in other countries might be called machismo, it's also a progressive society uh, in many ways, uh, especially the non-ultra-Orthodox part. But I didn't realize no one else in her war cabinet was a woman. In fact, the only other women, and there are prominent women, were secretaries and people who had a personal connection to her, but every single person tasked with moving a tank or eavesdropping on the, on the Egyptians or any other aspect of the war was a man. That's interesting.
1: To- totally. And, and you know, we call it the only woman in the room, and um, she was not only the only woman in the cabinet she also influenced um leaders after her time like uh angela merkel and margaret Thatcher. and you know she paved the way to a lot of women in um you know in 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 places in 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 the western world in a way and uh it's massive it's massive because Israel in the 70s was misogynist. You know, there were misogynist men who did not see a woman in any significant role. And she just found herself. She didn't even want to be a prime minister. She was pushed to be a prime minister uh, by two people who fought between themselves in the labor party. So she said, why me? They said, well, you'll be prime minister for you know, just a year until we figure out who will be prime minister. And she found herself in, 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 as part of the worst um, war that we ever had and this trauma for life.
0: Were women always um, drafted and served in the Israeli military?
1: Absolutely. My mom uh, did that for two years. My father went to the war of Yom Kippur. I was a baby. Um, Yeah, absolutely. That's a mandatory.
0: So there is a part in the movie where she's meeting with Ariel Sharon, um, who is, if you know Ariel Sharon, intent on you know driving his, ste- his uh, tanks into Cairo, and I think he steals some snacks at the end of the scene. But she does say to him, forgive me, uh, Ariel, I don't know what these symbols mean, uh, something with uh, military jargon on the map. And my question is, is that there? She's a surrogate for the viewer, and so now we can understand what the symbols, or would she, even though she did serve in the military, not be as conversant? As, as, say, Moshe Dayan or some of the other military leaders were?
1: So my great, great question, but Golda did not serve in the military. Golda oh, right. uh, was, uh, she was American from Milwaukee. She's from Milwaukee, right? Yeah, Milwaukee, who came to Israel in her 20s uh, and did not serve the army, did not, he did, did not know anything about army or war. Wow. Um, and that's why she's asking those questions, to understand what the hell is going on and relying on her commanders and and her um ministers um but and that's what makes her also an outsider kind of a uh, i don't want to say pariah but you know she was somebody who is not sabra and that's why all these men were not standing up when she came into the room they felt that she's like what does she know about what's going on um so that's why she's asking all those questions
0: yeah, and there was sexism, and she notes that uh, they stand up for f- other prime ministers. But I didn't see it so much played out as great doubt among the other top military commanders, as far as the question: Does Golda have what it takes to lead us through this moment?
1: Was that there, or you know, why you know, why it wasn't there. Why? Because everyone were freaking the fuck out. It was basically... <laughs> everyone Diane had to Was town. When Dayan was about to kill himself and activate the nuclear weapon, Dado didn't know what to do, and everyone were freaking out. These people came from the Six-Day War, like the kings of the Middle East. You know, They came like, we are with the swagger, right? And they got a giant slap. So they were not even in a position to doubt her or not her. They just were, we are, the, the Egyptians are about to conquer Israel. And she actually, the, the older lady, right, that everybody called grandma, she was the one who saved our asses by bringing all the shipments from the States. Without the shipments, without those like massive war planes and, and, and ammunition, we wouldn't survive if so. Or. The Americans saved us. So so people were freaking out people were like sh- in the ver- shocked and she was functional where while others was not were not
0: so you said before this isn't in many ways it's certainly not a stereotypical war movie it's not even a stereotypical movie about a great leader during a war that was no, a turning point like churchill and one pivotal scene uh, depicting a pivotal battle really underlines that point. And it is a moment of great triumph in the war where battalions of Egyptian tanks are destroyed. There is no, now this is what's interesting. There's no ambiguity in the righteousness of the cause of the Israelis. This is a battle for their life and they were intact. There's no ambiguity about the importance of the moment. So you would imagine that this would play out triumphantly, but in fact, it plays Played out due to Helen Mirren's acting and the way you shot it in this really disorienting way with your camera moves, it played out much differently. Tell me about why you made the choices you made for that scene.
1: Great question, Mike. really, um, Thank you for asking it. Um, you know, I, I grew up on um, on films from the 70s, um, and and the films that my father took me to are, um, I don't know if you saw it, but uh, The Conversation, Coppola, oh, Gene, Gene yes. Heffman, one of yes. the yes. most geniuses, you know, such a small movie with a lot of heart. Uh, I the, believe his
0: character's name was Harvey Call. Is that right? Yeah.
1: How do you remember? I yeah, so. yeah <laughs> I think so too. Uh, based on sound, and yes. sound is another narrative in the movie. Another movie that blew me away was uh, um, Blowout with John Travolta, Brian De Palma, a movie that basically is based on sound. You know, John Travolta accidentally hears a murder while he's recording something. And that, you know, brings us to another level of information and, and narrative. So all these, like, I call them the paranoia films of the 70s, um, yes. influenced me a lot. Um, also Das Boot uh that was shot in one location and um the downfall of hitler that but directed by hirspiegel um that for me was an amazing depiction of how these people were stuck in this bunker with no you know and, and based on this on this pressure and paranoia and claustrophobic uh feeling that's what i wanted to have in golda knowing that she didn't go to the front she didn't have uh, the ability to see at the actual uh, location of all this of all the war so she was feeding fed by um by sound from the war and by the drone that israel in, israel invented in 1973 they were the first country to invent a giant drone that looks like a plane oh, okay. and gave you top shot of those tanks that you spoke about so she saw 16 millimeter uh, projection of those, of those shots and heard the sound of the radio chatter uh, that I brought from a real radio chatter uh, from the war. So that's something I wanted to use in order for us to understand what she
0: felt. So I wanna ask you about the American involvement historically, but first let's talk about the, uh, I think only or most prominent American character, Henry Kissinger. Mr. Secretary? You are to open a humanitarian corridor to the third army, Golda. We cannot
1: allow 30,000 men to die of thirst.
0: We'll send them water when we've got our prisoners back.
1: I will try to arrange...
0: And Sadat agrees to direct talks with Israel. In real life, he's 5'8", played by Liev Shriver, who's 6'3". Do you make any accommodation for that seven-inch difference?
1: No, but I will tell you that uh, Liev met with Henry uh, two days before shooting his scene in an apartment in New York. Um, and the 101 Henry Kissinger was sharp and gave him all the little stories, including the right ring from right to left and the whole you know stuff that got into the movie because of Henry Kissinger.
0: I don't want to insult the screenwriter, but I'm like, that is the best line in the movie. <laughs> and it was Henry Kissinger's line?
1: I know I know so it's it's something that that and so when when Liev came to set he was so charged with information and with stuff that yeah he blew me away and Helen so we changed the script we changed a little bit the dynamic but when those geniuses Helen and Liev went on to shoot the scene it's just it was just lay just lay back and watch them play just let them let them do their magic it was just amazing i could do another movie just by their their relationship henry and, uh, and uh, golda
0: right so i guess i don't who knows maybe you know what, some things that kissinger told uh, Liev. but if i was lev i would have been after uh, in the script and in history, you understand what the United States' interests were, which is to have Israel win, but not win so overwhelmingly that- With a, it,
1: with a bleeding nose.
0: Right. Uh, yeah. And it, it, they're worried about the Saudis. They're worried about oil prices. He's a diplomat. He has to always play this middle a game. A juggler. Yeah. Right. So I would, I, if I were uh, Shriver, and I guess some actors don't even care about this, but if I were him, I'd say, well, what were you really thinking? We know what your task was, but what was your, where were your allegiances? I don't know. Did he know any of that?
1: Yes. And I think that what, um, what Henry told Liev that, and he was kind of honest about it. He said, look, I traveled to Russia. I went to, you know, uh, to all the other countries and I felt like they're not treating me well. But when I came to Golda's Kitchen, I felt like I'm, I'm, I'm meeting Baba." Yeah. I'm meeting someone who the gave me soup. Yeah. yeah. Who who basically she had a soft and very human approach. And if you think about it, she did it on purpose because she wanted to soften him mm-hmm. and make him feel like home in order to get more planes, more weapons, and you know, give her a little bit more time and not declaring like a ceasefire. So she got what she wanted. He was led into this situation without even knowing about it. She's smart as hell. Yeah. She basically milked everything she wanted from him by softening him.
0: Yeah. And also the setting, literally her home, very humble. You know, I'm sure when he was with the Soviets and he was- Yeah, like those um,
1: massive, you know. How
0: could they not? And maybe there's a a, a parade.
1: Drinking, yeah. But with
0: Golda, it's him. It's very Yeah, alone in her kitchen.
1: Yeah, very human, very family-like. So he said, you know, this, she's my family. Mm-hmm. How can I betray my family mm-hmm. in a way? So when she, he's getting into his car and she says goodbye, she's smoking. You see that she fooled him. You see that she nailed yeah. him.
0: So as I say, this movie, or I said in the uh, intro, it su- does to some extent co-star cigarettes. There was a lot of smoking in the movie. I guess there was a lot of smoking. Is there still a lot of smoking in Israel?
1: no not as much but um you know there are two living people in in uh that were really close to golda one was uh mazzini who's was her press secretary he's still alive 91 super sharp giving lectures amazing and adam her bodyguard Mm -hmm. both of them told us listen if you really want to depict golda as she was you gotta have her smoke all the fucking time I mean, she was in the bathroom. She smoked. She was taking a shower. She smoked. She was like killing herself in a way. It's like self, self. Um, I don't know how you call it, but it's it's just like self-loathing yeah. in a way. Um, and I kind of used it as a metaphor for the fog of war, so people cannot even see. They're mm-hmm. blind. You know, they're blind for what is happening at the front because the intelligent division um, was not activated. Mm-hmm. And did did not function, and they blind of seeing each other, you know. So th- this smoke is also the smoke of the tanks that are driving there and getting into her lungs, and she's killing herself, right. knowing she has cancer, knowing she's on the verge of like, you know, being basically dead. And she keeps keeps smoking those, and everyone smoked. So for me, it was a great analogy for what happening in the front, without going and shooting in the front, and Black coffee is something that she did. She she drank tons of black coffee, one after another, after another. Uh, that was the, and, and they're locked in this like small bunker, right? In these corridors in Tel Aviv, uh, trying to, to
0: to understand what to do. And no one knows what to do. The name of the film is Golda. It is open in select cities now. And the director is Guy Native. Thank you so much, Guy. Thank you so much,
1: Mike. Appreciate it.
0: And now the spiel. Belgian researchers who hail from a country about the size of Belgium tested 39 brands of straws for the group of synthetic chemicals known as poly- and perfluoroalkyl substances, PFAS, PFAS I think they call them. PFAS were found in the majority of the straws tested, and they were most commonly found in... The straws that have been sold to us, sometimes literally, as the salve, the solution to the scourge that is plastic straws. What I'm trying to say is that food additives and contaminants, that esteemed publication now definitively shows that paper and bamboo straws are worse for the environment and worse for human beings in the environment than the once denigrated plastic straws. Now you might ask, was chromatographic separation performed using Zorbax Eclipse plus RRHD C18 column? It was! And was the normality of the dataset verified using a Shapiro-Wilk test and for non-normally distributed data was a non-parametric Kruskal-Wallis test used? They were! So in other words, I'll read you the conclusion of the study. PFAS were found, these chemicals, I think they're sometimes called forever chemicals. They've newly been called forever chemicals. They were present in all types of straws, but primarily those made from plant-based material. Little tiny traces in the plastic straws, not much, and actually among each type of uh, different brands of straws, they, they did vary a bit. But bamboo and especially plastic, because these plastic straws have coating, and these plastic straws are, to some extent, though if we use them, not a great extent, water-resistant. The eco-friendly plastic straws are terrible in terms of these chemicals. There, as the researchers show, not necessarily a more sustainable alternative to plastic straws because they are an additional source of PFAS exposure in humans and the environment. In other words, they degrade in landfills and through incomplete incineration and, oh, in the oceans. Yeah, I've been on an anti anti plastic straw kick for a long, long time. A listener and journalist got in touch with me today and said, Mike, when was your spiel on plastic straws? Every year since 2016. Let me play you one. This wasn't technically a spiel. I started the show talking about the supposed benefits of moving away from plastic straws. Runs about five or six minutes. Here we go. The world is a dirty, deficient, declining place. It is warming, water is waning, and there are giant masses of non-biodegradable plastic clogging up the world's oceans. Eight million tons of plastic. And we might feel powerless, but what if I told you, if we all sacrifice just a little, we could make a difference. How much of a difference? Well, listen to this. Yeah, we'd have to give up a welcomed convenience that we've all come to rely on and quite like, in fact. But if we denied ourselves this convenience, we can solve, are you ready? We can solve all but 99.7% of the problem. you do it, right? Oh, oh, oh. And what if I also told you that it would leave the most vulnerable population the worst off? But remember, the upside is that 99.7% of the problem will still remain as bad as ever. Wait, you might say, that sucks. Yes, it does, literally, because I'm talking about plastic straws. Three years ago, a video of a sea turtle with a straw up its nose went viral. At the time, TMZ erroneously reported the turtle had a $2,000 a day coke habit. When I'm on the Galapagan nose, sugar, I feel like I'm going 100 miles a month. Okay, that's not true. It's a great turtle impression, though. Sad turtle. Let's rethink straws. But the actual statistic is that plastic straws only account for 0.3% of the world's plastic usage. That is a statistic, however, and as we will find out later in the show, statistics often lose to more powerful emotion, but this is the top of the show, and we haven't learned that lesson yet, so bear with me. Turns out Starbucks is going strawless. If you wanna vacuum up your beverages at 30,000 feet via a thin cylindrical plastic tube, fly at different airlines than Alaska, and the Chicago White Sox have also gone strawless. Anti-straw animus does seem ill-conceived. Closer to my home, the Barclays Center in Brooklyn announced a ban on straws. New York one was outside Barclays. Two youngish white ladies thought it was a great thing, but this woman dissented. are the people that cannot drink that you depend on plastic straws. Like people that have disability,
1: that cannot hold the cup. They use this straw to drink.
0: And now she just starts staring into the middle distance and then says, Everything is an issue. (laughs) The part about people with disabilities needing plastic straws is correct. I predict restaurants will stock straws for the disabled. They will be blue like handicapped parking. And we could get some virtue signaling in the back end and we can get some virtue signaling in the ban itself and even more virtue signaling in the exception to the ban. By the way, I'm not against virtue signaling. It drives human behavior. But I'm thinking about that second thing she said. Everything is an issue. It's some piece of guilt to shoulder, some curse of knowledge, some awareness that we're poisoning ourselves or the kids or the world. The sacrifice of going without straws is admittedly pretty small. But I think the benefits may be smaller. The problem isn't that people like straws. Although I really do think people like straws. I like straws. I like blowing the paper wrapper across the room at one of my kids and then when he tries it to me and it's mostly spit, getting a little mad at him. I I love it when the coffee guy leaves a little bit of paper on the very top of the straw. It's like a reverse bris. He takes off all the parts under that little tippy top. I bet communicable diseases have plunged in areas where the coffee guy leaves just the tippy top amount of paper on the straw. But everything is an issue. We changed our toilets and our light bulbs and our BPP bottles or BBB or some with B's and P's that supposedly was going to kill us. or styrofoam, we threw out our styrofoam or didn't throw it out or composted it or whatever. And we know, you know, those were all necessary sacrifices. They really did have an environmental impact. We got by. The new lights aren't as crisp. The new toilets don't flush as well. But I'll be damned if I'm going to give in to Laura Ingram and talking points about how the toilet flow regulation is the death knell of freedom. My argument isn't a freedom argument. It's an accrual argument of supposed responsibility argument. It's filling our bandwidth with data to feel guilty about. When I was a kid, groups protested, ban the bomb or save the whales. But those efforts were sharp and directed at the communities that were making the bombs or killing the whales. Now, Every movement is flattened in its dissemination and in its targets. It's just another thing to worry about, to feel bad about, to measure ourselves up against and to find out that we're not doing well. I know it's just straws and one day it'll be eyelets and after that, aglets. So what I'm saying is not that straws are the last straw. And also, this particular dromedary has a stronger back than all that. Also, I'm not making this out to be a bigger argument than it is, just so I could easily beat it up. That would be the straw man. What I am saying is this. Let's keep in mind what that woman said. Everything's an issue. And I don't think straws needs to be one. Hi, it's Mike now in 2023. And I have to say I was wrong. I used I thought the statistics that were most beneficial or most forgiving of the anti anti plastic straw movement. In other words, there were some statistics that said it was a third of 1% of all oceanic waste was plastic straws. It's 10th of that. I was off by an order of magnitude. It's 0.03%. I didn't get the math wrong. There are different estimates out there, but the best one is something like 0.025 or 0.03%. So the constitution, including amendments is 7,591 words. The percent of plastic straws in the ocean's plastics as expressed as words in the U S constitution, two words, 2.2. That's it. Out of the whole constitution. What's it matter? This is a question I get. Mike, what's it matter? What's it matter to engage in an annoying and statistically meaningless exercise that will make a discernible, knowable portion of your life worse, but also not improve the outside world at all? Kind of answers itself, right? Oh, also we should add that what's it matter? Just give in to social pressure. Engage in an annoying voluntary raising of your own cortisol levels and a decline in dopamine levels because of vague social pressure that you actually know has no impact on the actual world, but also has no impact on the abstracted idea of the world or nature itself because you are beset by the curse of accurate knowledge. What's it matter, Mike? I'll read an email I got from when I did that original spiel. Subject glib straw band technique. Solving three-tenths of one percent of a problem, and again, I overstated that, but this guy goes on, solving three-tenths of one percent of a problem is better than making fun of those hoping to solve the much bigger issue of single-use plastic in the waste stream. If focusing on straws is a mechanism for getting clueless people to be aware of problems outside their cozy existence, I'm all for it. Yeah, and if my burning $20 bills in my front lawn is a mechanism for lowering overall inflation, I'm all for it. The point is neither is a mechanism. But that, what I just read you, that is key to the complaint. It's all right there, that our existence is cozy and the natural world is being degraded. Therefore, what we need to do is inconvenience ourselves if not for practical reasons, actually attached to solutions, well then, as a form of penance, as with a religion, there is also the claim that it will inspire more activism, to which I say, yes, unless the people being compelled towards activism actually learn the truth, the truth that getting rid of plastic straws doesn't help at all in any way that anyone can see or feel or will matter to the seas or the turtles or the oceans. The truth of that, it's a little bit of a self-destruct button to the idea of straws as an inspirational gateway. I did a further interview with a person who was propagating this. Well, we start with the straws and they'll get to more activism and I asked her, why not we start with the straws? They find out that moving to paper straws doesn't do anything. They get dissuaded from further activism. Not a great answer to that one. And this brings me back to the Belgian study. It answers all of these questions about my glib straw technique. Your terrible piece of floppy paper is actually hurting the environment, not just my beverage experience. It's hurting it through the PFASs, which I am assuming are scarier to you, the kind of person who gets very scared about 0.03% of plastic in the ocean, and PFASs are scarier because they are vague, they are unknowable, and they seem to penetrate all of us like impure thoughts of a religion. The sea turtles should feel sorry for us with our permeable outer membranes and our susceptibility to the unknown, the microscopic, these micro-quasi-poisons. I have not been red-pilled or blue-pilled. I've been hollow-tube-pilled. And if I choke on that pill and need to be aspirated, for the love of God, do not use a paper straw. Sturdy plastic will do the job. Not bamboo, not paper. And if you aspirate me otherwise, you can be sure to pry that limp, lame straw from my cold, dead esophagus. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist. And Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca's is the CLO of Peachfish Productions. The straw that stirs the drink, if you will. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Advertise AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu Gperu and thanks for listening.